0: Good people, how we doing? This is your host Kevin Edwards, and uh, I don't even know why I'm calling you guys people anymore. You guys are barbarians, leaving a lot of negative criticism, a lot of negative reviews. But I'll tell you one thing: we appreciate that because you guys are keeping it real, and for the first time ever, I'm gonna present to you the Keep It Real series, designed for less fluff and more real conversations with leaders worth listening to. And before we begin, make sure to rate and review this episode, just so I know if it's real enough for you, or just share it with a leader in need. All right, no more fluff. Let's give it real, Simon Maywaring. There we go. Bam. Simon Maywaring. How we doing? Bam.
1: I am really good. I look... good. <laughs> what was that? Can you hear me okay? I can hear you perfectly clear. Is, Is that... Do you have a two tabs open? Hey there, can you hear me now? Yeah, that's good. You know what? I had a couple of tabs open. I knew it. I knew it. Man. We had, See that. We've had Dude, yeah, That was over. awesome.
0: Hey, I was telling I was telling my friend Noah, who's our co I was saying, you know, every time we go to a conference, I'm always telling him just expect our technology not to work. It's just
1: Right it's and over. and we're also we're so diligent now that we go, well we're going to open it and it didn't open, so let's open it again and now we've got two of them open. So, you know, you can only you can only do what you can only do, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it, it's funny. I can't
1: tell you how many times
0: we've had tech errors. In fact, uh, one of the, I, I was telling my friend today, he was like, hey, who, who have you interviewed? We got a friend in town and I'll bring him up later in the show. Right. Uh, he's like, hey, you know, who have you interviewed? He's uh, my roommate's friend. I'm like, um, biggest name is Akon. He's like, Akon? like, no way. Like convict music? I'm like, yeah. Right. And he said, um, "And so I was like, well you know, actually it was kind of funny. I said, you know, the first time we actually interviewed him was the first time we ever used our new equipment. So I, my, my coworkers in there sweating bullets and I'm sure you've done shoots with other <laughs> yeah. people as well. And the tech always fails. So we had interns oh, in
1: yeah. the best buy getting cords, cords aren't working. And Can I this- tell you, you know, we, uh, you know, we interview global CEOs in our podcasts and invariably something goes wrong. But I remember we used to do a conference and the night before, the first time we did the conference at twelve PM with two hundred, you know, senior execs arriving the next morning, none of the screens were working. And we tore the whole thing apart to make sense of it. And it was just ultimately the HDMI cable and we had to drive across to Burbank in the middle of the night to go and get it was just just a little connection in the cable, but it took four hours and about 40, 400 pounds across 10 different people to work that out. And um, you know, when, you, you, when a screen goes live and it's working, you want to cry? One of those moments. It was just <laughs> we're just
0: holding each other. It is <laughs> technology, the most frustrating thing. I yeah. mean, I mean I, I, you're totally right. We've had the HDMI cord and we have an adapter to the micro HDMI cord that wasn't working. I mean, I I've seen it all, and but at the end of the day, expect the worst, Brian. So Brian. so uh, maybe we should do a podcast or something like that and get it. Brian, why do we do that? What the hell? Let's uh, yeah, let's jump back, folks. Uh, this is Simon Maywaring. I think I gave you a great title here. I said Simon Maywaring is a brand futurist, global keynote speaker, and best-selling author. He's Best known as the author of We First, How Brands and Consumers Use Social Media to Build a Better uh, World, and the founder and CEO of We First, a creative consultancy. But we, we want to know, Simon, who is the real Simon Manwaring?
1: Who's the real Simon Manwaring? I'm an Australian, which is why I talk funny. I'm a dad, a big family guy. I'm, a, I'm an ad guy who spent years, like a lot of ad people, working in Australia, London, and all over the U.S., trying to kind of live out different versions of success and kind of what you think is cool or important, I only to find I wasn't happy. And it was really interesting. I think, you know, for a long time, I was pretending to be something I wasn't. And then these strange circumstances came along professionally and personally that kind of knocked some sense into me. And, you know, the most powerful thing you can do, really, I've found as I look back, I'm 53 years old, as I look back and I go, you can get out of your own way and allow that alignment between who you are and what you do happen and it happens so naturally if you stop trying to control it if you stop trying to retreat to your head and make sense and safety of issues but rather just trust that there's something some role that you're supposed to play out there and and be open to it and just follow your passions and allow serendipity play its role and i had a really dramatic experience in that you know a dramatic experience in that what do you mean well, it was interesting. Um, you know, uh, I'd worked in Australia and done well in the ad game. I'd worked in London and done well in the ad game. I then worked at Wyden and Kennedy on Nike, and you have the cool job. And you do that and you write Olympics and World Cup and that sort of stuff, you know, and advertising, which at the time is a, is a big deal. But I wasn't happy. And then I went down to LA and I, I was worldwide creative director for Motorola. And, and you know, we launched the razor phone and other things, and that was a big success. And I wasn't happy. And the crazy thing about all of that, is that you run around trying to be important or cool or whatever it is, and then you find you're not happy. And it's very disconcerting when you're kind of you know in your mid-30s at the time, i got a young family, and I'm doing all this stuff and busting my nut, and I'm not happy. And in that moment, um, I got five messages on my answering machine in, Aus- uh, in L.A., and my folks live in Australia. And they're from my mom, and then my mom, and then my sister, my mom. And the last message from my mom was, Simon, dad died. Call us when you wake up. And she meant that because of the time difference between LA and Sydney. But I kind of took it in a different way. I was kind of wake up from what the hell are you doing? And you know, so I was professionally sort of unchallenged and unhappy. And then personally I was destabilized when my dad passed suddenly. And that was the it took that amount of disruption. For me to stop trying to be something because I was too fearful to be myself. And when I kind of actually let go of control and allowed whatever was meant to happen to show up, then, you know, I happened to read a speech that Bill Gates gave about the role of business in society. And I wrote a book to answer that called We First That Did Well. And here we are today. But that never would have happened if I kept trying to be something for somebody rather than be myself, you know?
0: I do understand. I mean, I don't know because I, I, I'm only 24
1: years old. So oh, you I, I, young whippersnapper. Exactly. I'm but, more but than here. twice your age. That's, yeah. that's insulting. Here's what I'm saying, though,
0: is I've interviewed. I haven't got to that point, but I've, I'm interviewing countless CEOs. All right, here's an example. So I'm creating courses. Right, And the courses are for uh, sustainable businesses, uh, purpose-driven branding, things like that, that we can get into these universities, teaching about right. circular economy, the shared economy, the regenerative economy, how, yeah. how to deal with constraints, things like that. But as I'm do, editing all these videos and finding these clips, almost every single guest that has come on the show, Simon, has come and reached that point. Yeah, Whether they're fresh out of college and they work for Deloitte in the corporate grifting world. They're spending trillions of dollars, right. and and they're uh, it's not purposeful gifting. And uh, now they found a way to to bring gifts for good to help out women in underserved communities, or it's uh, uh someone who was working uh, and graduate from Harvard Business School, uh, running a, um, a massive company, and then says, you know what, I just didn't find any happiness. And and where does that where is that intersection? of your career alignment, you know, how do you align your skills with your passions, your interests and things like that? Why do you think that is? Like, why do you think so many people struggle with finding um, a career like that?
1: I think, you know, I think as with with most things, we unlearn what is instinctive to us as kids. I think by nature, we're good people. By nature, we're empathetic. We care about each other. We we want to do good in the world. We want to make a difference. It's just how we all show up. And then we unlearn these things and it's replaced with different versions of success, whether it's the right career or the right company to work for and so on. I also think things like hate and racism, these are learned skills. You're not born that way. And I think they can be unlearned. But Hmm. all of that is to say that the sooner that we come to a crisis point where there's such dissonance, there's such a conflict between how we're spending our day, our time each day, and who we are as a person. You know, there's that expression: at some point, not doing what you should be doing, you know, becomes more painful than doing what you are doing. And you have to reach that threshold point. And it was interesting, you know, at one point I was lucky enough to be asked to go and do some training out at Necker Island with Sir Richard Branson. I was training thirty CEOs out there, and nice. Yeah, yeah, no, it was good. It was it was a great experience and I was intimidated and all that good stuff. And um I was staying in his daughter's house on Mosquito Island, which is next door to Necker Island, and we had a couple of chances to sit down and just have a drink and have a scotch and just talk. And Brexit had just happened. And um I said to him, I said, Listen, you know, everyone points to you as the most kind of exemplar entrepreneur in the world you've got these islands you've got planes you've got 300 companies in the virgin group and i said to him like you know what does success mean to you like what what kind of floats your boat and he just said to me family you know he said you know, we've been fighting for our family for forty years. You know, and we were killed for each other. We love each other to death, and that's what meant everything to him. And so, I think we chase we chase a lot of fool's gold in our lives. We think that if we get this job title or win that statue or get this recognition, it's going to make us feel fulfilled. Yet, time and again, I, I find that people who are in an elevated position have got over themselves at some point, and they realize that service. Is really the true reward, and here's one thing I've taken away from all of this because I've been lucky enough to be around a bunch of muckety mucks over the years. Um, I used to think that success was an outside-in job. You know, people who give you statues, people would give you awards, whatever it was. You know, you needed that external validation to, you know, cool your insecurities or whatever else it is. Um, but I've realized now over time, and you know, We First has been going for ten years now, is that it's an inside-out job. The way that you're fulfilled is that you fill, you fill yourself up from the inside through what you give to others. Mm. You don't get filled up by what others say about you from the outside. And that sounds very simplistic, but I swear to God, it is transformative in your life. Because if you look at all those people who've had recognition or success or wealth or whatever, you, whatever success looks like, invariably, many of them end up in a place of service because that's truly what is the most fulfilling for them. And so I would just say that um, you know, I, I, as we all run around and we're trying to find that right job or right career, I think the reason we don't find it is a lot of us are looking at it from the wrong lens. They're trying to fill a void within them by what others are going to say about them outside of them rather than kind of looking inside themselves and finding out the way to be the most meaningful service. Interesting. Interesting. So I'm watching an
0: Amazon commercial yesterday. Right. And it's the employee, he's signing. I don't know if you see. he's signing to the camera that the reason why he works is for his daughter, going back to the success, your family. Yeah. Is that, I mean, that's, that's his purpose, right? Yeah. And that's his purpose. And Amazon's doing yeah. a really good, good
1: job of reflecting that, Is that enough for you? Yeah, I think there's different degrees. I mean, firstly, no one has the right to judge anyone else in terms of whatever capacity or opportunity they have for the service they provide. You know, we all have different journeys in life at different times and different moments, and there's no rhyme or reason to it all. Um, That said, I think, you know, appropriate to any given person's moment in time and all the challenges and opportunities they've had, simply... Giving their family a leg up in a new country, or getting a new job, or putting the first kid into college, or supporting their kids in a way that they weren't supported by their parents, is a massive deal. So what you know, you can have the same order of magnitude in terms of service and impact through the lens of very, very different contributions, and it might be in that gentleman's case, you know, what he's doing for his daughter, um, you know. In my case, I thought maybe there was an opportunity to come to the States and, and um, have an impact and give my family an opportunity. Um, I'm a diehard Australian, but at the same time, you know, I, was, I I wondered what was going on on the other side of the world. You know how you always go to a party and there's always one Australian in the corner? Right. Not two. It's a rule. Australians, you're never allowed to have two of them in a room at any party. But um, <laughs> They're always the last so- at my parties all right yeah, they can, when they congregate like that there's a lot of parties that are missing their Australian that's all I'm saying they're not doing their job but um, you know for me it was like coming over here and seeing what what, a, what sort of a shot we can give people um, and give our family out here so I don't think there's any right or wrong I just think the fundamental shift is don't expect others to fill you up don't expect others to make you feel like a success I think the confidence the self-assuredness the the sense that your life has significance and you find fulfillment is an inside out job and, and once you realize that how you approach things how you look at things changes like before i was started we first i was already worried about did someone else have the better job was someone else making more money should i be doing a different career what what's wrong about what i'm doing now but when you actually step into that alignment between who you are and what you do all that energy used to waste on that stuff falls away and that congruency really shows up in terms of your self-confidence, your happiness, the type of partner, lover, husband, wife, friend you are to everyone because you don't have all this sort of frenetic energy like, oh, my God, I've got this static going all the time because I'm trying to work out who I am. You know.
0: Now, how how would that translate to business results? If I'm a CEO of an organization and I say, hey, I'm going to help you align your skills with your passions, your purpose, your yeah. service. How, what, how does that manifest in my business results?
1: You know, firstly, the CEO, the leadership, they have to do it for themselves. You know, you've got to be a leader who kind of really is a servant leader in that traditional sense where they're there to serve all of their stakeholders. And and then by extension, they've got to empower employees to do that, to look at what the, the overriding purpose of the company and then show up in a way that's going to be meaningful to them as an employee. Do they want to write blog posts? Do they want to, you know innovate. Do they, whatever they want to do, is, it is fine. But if your question is, how does that show up in your business? Just think about it this way. There's a big fundamental difference between people who go to work to do a job and people who go to work to give their gift, to give their skills. And I think Gallup's latest research said that only 27% of US employees are fully engaged at work. So most of them are just going, you know, I'm doing this job, I've got to have the money and, and whatever. And you can understand that mm-hmm. because many people aren't given the opportunity, the luxury of choice as to what they can do. Um, so what does it mean for your business? It means that you show up as a whole human being. It's not just, you know, you're not just a job title with a skill set. You're, you're showing up with your heart and your hands and your head and your... You know, your work is an expression of who you want to be and the difference you want to make in the world. And it's it's not a surprise that you show up very differently. Your contribution is different. You stay at the company longer. You recommend the company to other people and you're just much more productive. And really, ultimately, the bottom line of any company is a function of, you know, what what its people do, how they show up, how they contribute.
0: So I'm reading uh, Milton Friedman's The Social Responsibility of Business. This mm. is months ago. Now, I might boss right. this a little bit, but his core premise was essentially like a, a corporation is not a human being. like right. It has no moral compass. It cannot make a moral decision because it is not a person. It's an entity right. built up of many, many people. So, Simon, when BLM comes out, when uh, corporations are feeling pressure from any crisis to make a response – uh, how how do you make a response when you're in the C-suite? Like, how how do you make a response that represents hundreds or tens or if not a thousand employees in your organization? What would you do?
1: Yeah, I think you know Milton Friedman has uh, his point of view has been challenged on various fronts over the recent years, including the Supreme Court has you know effectively allowed corporations to be viewed as citizens in terms of campaign donations. Um, which helps the political process. So that's a whole longer wormhole to go in, unless the Supreme Court has changed that since, but it was big news at the time, probably two or three years ago. That said, how do you respond to BLM, which stands for Black Lives Matter, these really important protests that took place across the country and around the world that were kind of both characterized by the peaceful protests and, you know, police taking a knee and this unifying cry for social justice and racial equality. And at the same time, you had looting and violence and and, and so on, which had nothing to do with the protests. I would say that the way a company shows up, well, firstly, a company has to show up now because you can't sit there on the sidelines and say, we're not complicit. You know, your silence is complicit. Every single organization, unless they had been militant about their diversity and inclusion and how they onboard, how they recognize, how they remunerate employees, really is part of the problem. And, you know, if the social kind of fabric that we look around and see in this country is proof of the results we're getting no matter how good a job you're doing inside a company the results are not good enough you know there are too many people of color black brown who have just endured decades if not you know a couple of hundred years of systemic racism and business can play a huge force in in solving for that so how do you respond well you saw a lot of mistakes you know companies have to say something but the first thing they've got to do is take a beat and do an internal audit as to where they are. This is all flaring up. And what do they do in that real-time moment? They really sort of look inside the company and say, wow, are we part of the problem here? Or are we part of the solution? Secondly, they make a statement, a commitment to listen and better understand the issue. Because unless you have directly lived that experience, you are not best qualified to speak to it. And you are not, as qualified as organizations on the ground that have been addressing systemic racism for a long time. So internal audit, take a beat and um, really listen to understand the issue from those who really um, have lived it, and then go out and express your point of view and say, listen, we stand for this issue. This is what we're doing well. This is what we could do more of we were committed to understanding the issue. And all of that triage response like that, that's in real time. That's in the now. In terms of the next, then you start to commit to internal and external commitments that are going to address your own shortcomings and the issues more broadly. And so you've got to sort of say, because you know everyone was turning around, looking at these companies going, listen, stop making you know, pretty ads out there that say you support us. Show us your board. Show us the diversity inside your company. You know, walk your talk. We're sick of these platitudes that you throw at us. So make internal and external long-term commitments. And then on top of that, partner with organizations who know how to provide systemic solutions, long-term solutions. And then the final thing I'd say is, you know, if that's the, the, the now and that's the next, you know this whole new idea like what's going to be new you've got to you've got to work with other competitors inside your industry to change behavior across the board and you've got to share your progress you've got to be transparent you've got to be accountable and so i see it in this now next and new these three phases and everyone's on the hook because everyone's complicit overtly covertly in you know explicitly or inexplicitly or through action or inaction and there's no getting around that it's, it's so difficult for me to understand this
0: it, like as a whole. And I, get, I totally get your, your response. You know, but yeah. Milton Friedman, his whole thing is, you know, paragraph one, I'm just going to read it off. He said, businessmen who talk this way are unwitting puppets of the intellectual forces that have been undermining the basis of a free society these past decades. Are you working and operating in a free market if social pressures yeah. are dictating who works in your company? and the decisions that you make from there on out?
1: You know, there's a couple of issues here. There's this presumption that there's a free market out there, but how free is it? I mean, free implies that anyone has an opportunity and that you know, competition wins the day and that entrepreneurship and effort and sweat equity will be rewarded. Mm-hmm. That is so far from the truth of today's marketplace. Most industries are absolutely dominated by monopolies of 2 or 3 or 4 large players. And that's why you always hear people complaining about consolidation out there. And all of the market forces are controlled by those monopolies. And so there's very little room for the the little company to come in and enjoy this free market without being either kind of consumed and absorbed by those larger players or Pushed out of business because of them because they've got the you know the economies of scale to force them force them out so that's one issue the presumption of a free a free market is one of the things that a lot of the books in that are looking at capitalism right now are discussing because you know there's a there's a dissonance there's a disconnect between the idea of capitalism and how it's actually being practiced after decades and then these social forces you know. How effective is capitalism, which is a fluid state, capitalism has been practiced many different ways over different decades and so on, it's not this static thing. But how effective is capitalism as it's presently being practiced if the vast majority are not benefiting from the wealth it generates to the point that infrastructure is breaking down, unemployment is chronic. The disparity of wealth is at historic levels. We've got billionaires that almost despite their own efforts are accumulating even more wealth on a daily basis during COVID, like $70 billion has been generated across whatever it is, the top 10 wealthiest people in the country. So again, it's hard to sit there and go, well, we shouldn't let social forces dictate us because we're running a free market when that free market has a stranglehold on it by just you know a handful of companies. At the same time as that, all of that is coming at the cost of the vast majority of people. And so I am a deep, deep believer. In capitalism, but I just think the benefits of it need to be distributed more evenly so that it's actually sustainable. And what you're seeing right now, Kevin, is a breakdown. You're seeing the natural ecosystem breakdown through climate crisis, ocean acidification, loss of biodiversity, and extreme weather, and all these things that fall out of it. And you're seeing the global social fabric breakdown. And BLM, Black Lives Matter, and all of these issues are a function of that.
0: I like that. And he, here's, what I'm, here's my response to this, what I'm going to do. I'm going to take that comparison from BLM with what you just said with social pressures with climate change. And I'm going to give you an example between Patagonia and Real Leaders. Okay. Patagonia, uh, obviously, you know, started as a uh, mountain climbing company, a group of outdoor enthusiasts. Um, tried to st- or build basically the clothing line just to support the hardware company. They called it the software company at the time, actually. right. They started making a lot of clothing. They wanted it to be durable. They wanted their patents to be out there. And they built out this incredible, robust supply chain, uh, ro- robust organic cotton supply chain so that the songbirds wouldn't die. They As they took trips there, they canceled 140 suppliers and grew those relationships because they reached that constraint during that time and that cry of the environmental movement. Now, that was to the core competency of that business. And I know you got asked that question on that LinkedIn post. And I really liked your response. Here's yeah. what I'm going to say about the real leaders. And this is just theoretical. Take it bit what you will. I just came up with this on the spot. BLM comes out. I immediately say to my best friend and coworkers I mentioned earlier in the show who is half Black, hey, what am I doing I'm, I'm, I am I'm a, a person that is being targeted here as well because I have not reached out to as many black entrepreneurs and CEOs that mm-hmm. I could to have 50-50 balance. Now, our magazine wow. does a great job of that. We're able to do wow. that. We have 50-50 gender balance, uh, gender balance, and we try to feature as much culture and diversity as possible. We go through page by page and try to do that. But me as a podcast host, it's very difficult when we're interviewing the Impact Awards CEOs to find those because that's who I just get put in touch with. So do I need to build out if that's a constraint for me? If yeah. the Markets are, are capitalism. Is that yeah. capitalism the problem, or is it just the way things are right now? So can I use my business to find or build out or educate uh, or or fund more programs for HBCUs, things like that, to build a, I don't know a robust supply chain of CEOs? I mean that that'd be a theoretical.
1: Yeah. You know, it's not – I think, yes, we have to use business. Why? We've got the resources, the reach, the expertise. We're the only one that has the agility and the reach to – drive these broader changes, these cultural changes. And increasingly, you're seeing business shaped culture, whether it's Airbnb with universal belonging or Patagonia, whose purpose statement is to save our home planet. You know, business has much higher order goals now. But yes, you should be called out. Like when Black Lives Matter was happening, we looked internally at we first too. Mm. And you know, we're 14% LGBT we're 44% people of color, and we're over 60% women. Um, But up to that point, I had never thought about that. I'd never thought about it. I wasn't holding myself as a CEO accountable, nor was I thinking about that in terms of the clients, the entrepreneurs that we work with, any way that we can make a difference. And I I think you're right. I think it's been a very powerful and needs to be a persistent wake-up call where we hold ourselves accountable. Because you know, if we just do what's always been done, then we'll just do what's always been done. And that's not good enough. And we need to be very proactive about it. So you and I are part of the problem. And so is every company out there. And and then there's no avoiding it.
0: I guess what I'm trying to get at is this, is, is like for profit business. If I have the ability as a leader and a decision maker, can I make my own decisions? And and, and, and do I, am I controlled by the outside because that is what society is telling me to do? I think that's really the central argument for any business owner out there that's trying to find a way, but I was also like, this is, isn't core to my competency. And now I know you got asked that question in this purpose at work statement, because
1: it's not core to some people's market marketing strategies. You, like, yeah. And I, I, I would uh, go back to a fundamental question, which is what is the purpose of business? I mean if it's if it's just to make as much money as possible in a Milton Friedman sense then really you can tell anyone who's got a social issue at hand to take a hike hmm. but if it is actually to add value to people's lives, both in terms of the products and services you provide, but also to enrich their experience of life and by extension everybody's experience of life, then it just doesn't make sense to ignore these issues. I don't think that distinction I just drew is even relevant anymore and I'll tell you why. We are in so much trouble on so many fronts that business has to get to work. I mean BLM and the Black Black Lives Matter movement is just one symptom of a breakdown that's going on across the country, that if it's allowed to continue, will decimate business. I mean, you look at COVID, early in the days of COVID, they said that over $7 trillion of value had been lost from global markets because we'd mistreated the planet in a way that allowed this virus to spread all around the world and we'd mismanaged the response to it. And you looked at the millions of jobs that were lost and stay at home around the world and so on. So, you know, if we haven't learned our lesson now, that if we don't treat each other in a more appropriate way and we don't treat the planet in a more appropriate way then we deserve everything that that comes our way because we've been given a very very rude wake up call so coming back to your question you know i think you do have control but in as much as business is an opportunity or entre- entrepreneurship is an opportunity it's also a responsibility you can't do well at the, at the cost of others. You can't do well at the cost of the planet, because when everybody does that, the whole thing falls apart. And so this appeals to both you as an individual, but also as a human, you know, as an entrepreneur, but also as a human being. And I think we need to hold ourselves accountable. Like what role do we want to play in the world? And if it's rape and pillage, you know, and take, profit for profit's sake over the back of others. We've seen what that leads to in 2008. We've seen a lot of the consequences playing out today. And we're running out of time with all these larger issues like climate. So don't be surprised if it ends up in a really, really dark place.
0: We're definitely at a time where the external costs of capitalism cannot be comfortably ignored. We talk about it all the time on the podcast, but I did have an investor on Early was investing in, I think it was ESG at the time, now it's impact investing. And he was saying, you know, if an organization doesn't integrate sustainability into their core operations versus Mm -hmm. their marketing, he thinks it's just going to fall flat on its face. It's not going to be successful. How does a company that is already of wealth, already has so many employees, change its business model and integrate sustainability in? And and still, you know, see the same results. I guess. I mean,
1: I, how do you do something like that? It's not easy. But let me speak to that point you raised as to sustainability: is it necessary or not? Even if you are the most die-hard capitalist, profit for profit's sake, you should probably listen to the counsel of Larry Fink, who's the CEO of the largest hedge fund in the world that manages almost six point nine trillion dollars in assets. And in his third annual letter to shareholders. He, it was titled, um, A Fundamental Restructuring of the Capital Markets. And he basically said that we don't recommend sustainability just because it's doing good and making the world better, but we have to be responsible to our investors and say, we cannot recommend you invest in companies that aren't sustainable mm. because they won't be prepared to survive the future. For example, if yeah. banks, the success of banks turn on 30-year loans, but homes aren't around for 30 years because of extreme weather, that doesn't make any sense. Or if you've got infrastructure companies that are building bridges, but they're not built to withstand extreme weather, what does that mean? You know, so basically what they're saying is sustainability is a baseline. It's sta- table stakes for the reality of the world that we live in. So if you really want to invest shrewdly for the most amount of money, The CEO of the largest hedge fund in the world is telling his investors, invest in sustainable companies. Hmm. That said, how do you go about it? You know, it's easy and it's hard. You know, the only difference between the companies that do it and those who don't are those who've got the courage to act. And you start internally, for example, an audit around diversity and inclusion because, for, you know, for those who aren't familiar with sustainability, it encompasses a lot of things these days. Like a lot of people are talking about it in terms of ESG, environmental, social, and governance issues. Environment is obvious, the planet, social is those social issues like Black Lives Matter, and governance is how you run your country, your company. And so, you know, you can start with your own diversity and inclusion. But most importantly, look up at your, your supply chain, who you're working with. And if those people aren't transparent about how they make their product and the difference they're, you know, the efforts they're making to protect the planet, they're exposing you to risk because not only do consumers look at retail brands, you know, consumer brands and say, hey, what's that packaging? How are they made? How does that affect the environment? They're looking behind those companies to their, you know, to the the suppliers and calling them out. So if you're not doing it, you're exposing yourself to risk. So the first place to start is internal. To make sure that you're responsible in how you treat your employees and also to look upstream so that you're preventing the problem in the first place instead of trying to prevent, you know, fix the problem after the fact. And this whole idea of fixing it upstream to go from remedial to preventative, to go from, you know, less harm to more good, to go to net positive. That's what it's all about. And here's why I'm optimistic, Kevin. Hmm. The same way all these issues are connected from climate to ocean acidification and the temperatures of the ocean to the melting of the polar caps and all these different things, the same way they hurt us more because they're connected, they can help us if we do the right thing because they're all connected. If we start to treat the planet more effectively, that'll have a better effect on the environments in which we live and the species and biodiversity out there and so on and so on. So this connectivity can work in our favor, not just against us.
0: I think that's a good point as well with like Larry Fink's letter. You know, he's also saying like 60, like 3% of millennials now believe the purpose of business is to improve society, not right? to maximize shareholder value in now. And so I'm curious, Simon, since you just got all this experience, have you dealt with a company or an organization that just didn't get it? And then you, you talked to them a little bit and you nudge them and then it clicked for them.
1: <laughs> Have you ever dealt with an organization? Yeah, I'll give you a couple of examples. And for those who don't know, my company We First, we're a strategic consultancy. That drives growth and impact for purpose-driven brands. And we work with startups that have venture backing or something. You know, these venture firms put some money into them. We work for companies like Tom's and Timberland and Virgin and so on, who, you know, are purpose leaders and also very large corporations. So that's just background if you don't know. So we have a lot of direct experience in this. And it, we get a lot of frowny face CFOs. You know, you go to go to and present to the board. I spend 85% of my time in front of boards. And you've got the internal champion, the CMO, the CEO who wants it, and then you might have somebody on the group is like, why is this important? Is this a must do or is this a nice to do? Because we're just trying to survive in COVID, let alone anything else, you know? And here's what you do. You've got to do three things. You've got to show them the data to support it. You know, like the statistics you just mentioned with Larry Fink and and Gen Z and so on. Um, Then you've got to show them their competitive set which is, okay, what are your competitors doing? And that kind of engages their competitive instinct. So their brain has been involved, their mind's been involved from the data, and now their competitive instinct is kind of engaged. It's like, oh, God, are we missing out? You know. And then finally, you look at it and say, okay, what is the cost of doing it and what could that look like if we did do it, which is you know, reputation enhancement, increased resonance with younger demographics, the future consumer, blah, blah, blah. And also, what's the cost of not doing it? where you invite irrelevance. Your competitors get ahead of you. They steal market share. These new players come along with lower barriers to entry and they start spin up a company and talk about the good work they're doing and they eat your lunch. (laughs) And if you do the data, the competitive set and the cost benefit analysis, in my experience, more often than not, Anyone on a board will go, it could be a bit of a nasty risk not to do this. And then the only other point I'll add to that is this. Most companies that haven't gone down this journey, they don't know what they don't know. And that's not their fault. But they take a leap of faith with you because you've laid it out sufficiently that they say we need this. And then at first, they intellectually understand it at a leadership level, marketing, HR. And then they actually execute the work and they go, huh, this feels good. And people seem to really be responding warmly and so on. And then they start to bring it to life and it resonates in the marketplace. And they're like, damn, this stuff works. Why? Because investors, consumers, and employees want it. Not because it's some magic doing good, but because that's what people want to see in their world because the world is challenged. And so my larger point there is just that even the companies that do it, they have these continual light bulb moments, where they're like, damn. And, and we've had many circumstances after two or three years of working with a company, they're like, ah, that's what you were talking about all that time ago. But they have to earn their way there. So, yeah, it's always a, it's a journey. It's a, it's a process.
0: Interesting. I like how you engage the competitive edge and then you right? bring it to risk. And the lower risk then translates to an understanding later on. That's almost like the same concept we were talking about earlier with finding your purpose and aligning that with your
1: career. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny. I feel like a lot of what we're talking about is absolutely crazy. And I'll tell you why. This isn't rocket science. Mm. Like the idea that business would go into business just to make the most money and damn the consequences doesn't make any sense to me because it doesn't sound like it's going to survive long because people won't appreciate it or because it's doing more harm than good. And so the fact that we have to really talk about the p- business needing a purpose, and that we should actually serve stakeholders, and that we should actually take care of the planet on which we depend, is in some ways just absurd.
0: Right? Are we being naive
1: too? Um, I think what happened, and this is my little soapbox in a sense, but I think you know, in the 40s and 50s when media became really powerful, you know you had television print and radio and then you had digital social and mobile we realized the power of media to reach a large number of people in real time and we became drunk on that power and so we started to use that power to manipulate people buy this because you know cigarettes are good for you or you know this brand is cool and what's happened now is we've overplayed our hand and then we've caused a lot of problems up there that are sh- out there that are showing up in people's daily lives And so now we're having to peel back all those disingenuous layers. So if you look from the eighties, when, you know, corporate social responsibility came along and then sustainability came along and sustainability got expanded and now it's purpose and then it might be accountability and then it might be transparency. All we're doing is peeling back these disingenuous layers of the onion that we built when we are intoxicated with the power of media, but now that consumers and citizens have access to the same information and the same media, they're calling BS. They're saying, no, you know, you're, you're, you're harming our planet. You're, you know, the, the, the wealth inequality is causing huge social problems. You're talking out of both sides of your mouth. We're going to vote with our dollars and we're going elsewhere. And basically, we've had our, they've called us on it.
0: I want to bring an example. And I mentioned to you a little bit before the show,
1: uh, about Australia. And right. about the, there, there's a, a, a mine. I like the way you said it, by the way, Australia. Australia. You know, if you're going to say Australia, it's like YA at the end, Australia. Australia. You know, there
0: you go. And, and so what happened, I mean, Australia's leading industry is mining. I didn't know that. Right. And so they're mining for steel, right? And right. they <laughs> blasted this place and it destroyed a 40 or 60, I think it was a 40,000 year old cave and structures that had aboriginal artifacts in there that right. belonged to the indigenous people and you just look at that and you go you know how do you let something like that happen we've done this yeah. time and time again with the indigenous population in the united states how do we stop history from repeating itself and then you, you just talk about well you just talking about the people see it they're on social media now there's an yeah. uprising it's the same thing with BLM. Look, how? Like, what's going to happen in the future? Like, when will this stop? And like, why do you?
1: I'm just. Well, this is. I mean, crazy. look at it's crazy times. It is. Let I me mean, look at Mount Rushmore, which is, you know, was Indian land, and you know, the recent July Fourth celebration was a huge issue in terms of an infringement of of their rights. Let alone blowing up Aboriginal, you know, um, ancient burial sites and caves in Australia. And I think, you know, all through the news over the last two decades, you've heard of terrible issues when, you know, terrorist groups or civil war or, you know, outright war takes place in different countries and they're destroying the monuments of those countries. Mm. I think, you know, that is caused by so many political and cultural and historical kind of issues that are very complicated. And I'm not qualified to speak to them, but what I would say is this. If we were to look to anyone for guidance as to how we navigate the future, I think it is Indigenous people, and here's why, and this is just one of the many reasons we should respect their sites and heritage and culture, is that, you know, they had hundreds of years, if not centuries, I mean, you know, millennia in which they lived on the land and worked out how to live, you know, in a synergistic way with the environment. So much so that if you listen to authors like Lynn Twist, who wrote The Soul of Money and others out there, you know, my understanding of what Indigenous people felt was that it really was about sufficiency. Like everyone in a community, a human community, would take what they needed from their environment, from the planet, but only to the point of sufficiency. And anyone who took more than they needed was actually considered a crazy person because it actually hurt them, hurt the community and hurt the planet. And you can understand that logic. Mm. You know, If you're taking more than you actually literally need, it comes at a cost of everybody else. And so all of that is to say that if we're looking at what dynamics we should leverage to form a better relationship with the planet and each other, where are those exemplars? What were the values? I mean, if you look at the in Native Americans, you look at Eskimos, you look at Aboriginals and so on, they've all codified their respect for Mother Nature, whether it's the Great Spirit, whether they're kind of, you know, they're deified in some way and it's part of their religious belief, but they've elevated the relationship with the planet and their relationship to each other and the dynamics they operate through, you know, between them are a function of that. We've done the opposite. We've seen ourselves as at the top of the food chain and the planet is ours to pillage. And now it's come at great cost to ourselves and increasingly so over the next couple of decades. So it's a sort of slightly different answer to a question, but I think when are things going to change? I have two thoughts on that. One is I do trust in the survival instinct of humanity. I do think we will change at the point when we're going to put ourselves out of business. But the second point is I think we're going to go right down to the wire because those vested interests those who have benefited most will protect their interests as aggressively as possible until there is absolutely no way to do otherwise than to change what we're doing mm. so i do believe hum- humanity you know human beings are fundamentally good and I do believe that our survival instinct will unlock innovation and collaboration on levels we have never seen before, but I, I am worried that we will leave it to the last minute. And one of the casualties in that process is how we treat indigenous people's sites and so on. And
0: uh, man, that's a great answer. Simon, you're a great guest to have on this show. I'm glad we got you on. Oh, uh, I, I'm, I'm concerned because it's so interconnected. Yeah, the SDGs—they're great goals. We have now taken like I think there were like 100 plus goals before, and then we narrowed them down to 17, and they need to go by 2030. And we move back the goalposts, but all of these goals are interconnected. And what I mean mean by that is like no food or like no hunger is connected to poverty. Yeah, poverty is connected to education. Education could be connected to almost anything you could think of. Right. Um, and in this specific example, with the mining company, just to take you back, they have to get approval from the government. Yeah, So they have to have approval. They, they sit down with the, uh, the indigenous population there, actually, and they have to have a meeting, but the indigenous population does not have a say in whether they do it or not. So right. They have had 40, 436 leg, uh, approvals like, in the past a like, year or so to mine into these areas. And mm-hmm. touch these areas. And right after this one had happened, another organization got another approval. So it's interconnected. It's, it's not just the, the corporation. It's the leaders of the corporation. It's the uh, government officials, it's the people yeah. that they're paying. You know, where do, where does it where does it stop? And and can you act, can can you actually change something like that?
1: Yeah. I mean, we're facing many similar issues here in the United States and around the world. At what point do things change to the benefit of the collective rather than a few individuals? And if you look at the most sober answers out there from former President Obama and others, your right to vote is so critical because you don't have any control over the lobbying, the backhanders that are going on in Australia, in the United States, the vested interests that are being protected, the deal making that's going on, the promises that are being made and so i would imagine and i am not qualified to speak to what is going on in the australian government right now nor do i know enough about that topic but i suspect that you know politicians are suffering from short termism where you know they want to get something done during their tenure they want to be rewarded covertly or overtly for doing so and they may justify it in other terms where, where it's just sort of, you know, the relationship with a superpower on which the national economy depends and so on and so on and so on. I think you can rationalize any good deed away, which is not good, you know, which is problematic. At the same time, there is a narrative in Australia that, you know, the government is selling out the country, the, the, the literal country, you know, um the natural habitat for those mining rights, you know, and, um, you know eventually that will run out, and it's a very short-term view. And so you know, I do think it's easy to be pessimistic about it all because these brokers of power have no interest in our opinion. But all we can do at the end of the day is to vote them out of office and to celebrate and elevate those that are to the best that they can, given all the multiple pressures they're under from different forces, interested, authentically interested in doing, you know, serving their constituents. And I think people have become rightly cynical about politics because that doesn't seem to be the way anymore, but it's economics, it's politics, you know, and uh, it's business all working together to serve a small number of people.
0: You made a great point. Short-termism and resources will run out. So yeah. I'm speaking with Jonathan F.P. Rose, he made the Years Impact Awards company. He's one of the first interviews we have. And I shared this on at the Impact Awards and right. uh, he we talked about his business for maybe 10 minutes. He is big on, he's a big historian. Like he did a ton of research on ancient cities uh, around the world and how uh, the generation and excess of surplus uh, is needed to sustain cities. And in, right. in one sentence, we talk about Teotihuacan. It's an ancient city in Mexico, Simon. Right. And the way their civilization, Ended one of the largest civilizations in South America, but they're prior to the Aztecs. The way their civilization ended was this: there was an uprising in the city because they ran out of resources. They cut down all the trees to right. fuel the, the the to burn them to basically uh, create. I believe it was believe as like mold for like the structures of the buildings of the wealthy. Once you run out of the trees, you run like the whole reforestation, all the right. lands, all the crops go away, yeah. there's no food. Sure. Uprising comes. So at what cost, you know, are are we are, is capitalism itself, is my business, is your business, having an impact on and and why aren't we measuring things like this?
1: Well, I think, you know, short termism is one of those things where we either look at the life cycle of my political time in office or, you know, my company or the next quarterly reporting to the street and so on. And I actually think that example you gave is not hugely dissimilar to some of the things that happened in some of the islands in New Zealand where they cut down all the trees and so on at such a rate that they weren't able to regenerate. Mm. And it was interesting during the massive bushfires in Australia at the end of last year, which seems like a lifetime ago, there were some um, Aboriginal uh, firemen there who actually their job is to do controlled burning across the country. And what they did and they explained to people is they said these bushfires occurred because people weren't, they didn't understand the landscape and how to do controlled burning in a way that allows the landscape to regenerate without leading to these fires. And I think, you know, it's just symptomatic of our lack of interest or understanding in the well being of the natural world itself. And the big danger we're facing right now is you know you've heard in so many articles in the press and climate scientists is there's a there's a point at which you know you cannot stop the damage that's the fallout from issues like climate crisis or the rising temperature of the ocean or what they call the silent killer you know loss of biodiversity because you know when the one link in that sort of ecosystem chain is broken the whole the whole chain suffers and so when are we going to learn when are we going to wake up i think we are seeing the rise of generations that are better equipped than those before them to drive that change at scale. As we know, Gen Z and millennials really want to, are values driven and they want to work for and buy from companies that are doing good. And they're less invested in, you know, owning stuff that ultimately owns them. And so I think we're going to change when we get that coalition that necessary coalition of partners that come together, which includes employees, it includes customers, and it includes investors. Because without all three of them and others, Half of them can try, but the others are like, no, let's make hay and party and decimate the earth. Only when you've got that coalition of all the different key players can you start to build out a viable alternative to the way capitalism is being practiced. And a lot of people talk about how we're trying to switch out the engine of capitalism as we're hurtling down the road. But until we have all the parts, we don't have an engine. It can't actually operate as a viable alternative. And so I do think we will change where there's sufficient pain, there's a sufficient coalition of stakeholders that want the same things and that we're collaborating in new ways to make that happen.
0: So you think it's going to get to a point and and maybe it has to get to a point of this destruction in order for things to change. And I wanna I wanna spice this up a little bit, Simon. Sure. I've got a I've got a crazy freaking video and, and viewer discretion Uh-oh. is advised. Uh there is some some uh, pretty obscene language in this as well. This is a clip from one of my best friends that he sent me this afternoon. Okay. We're gonna share it from Portland, Oregon here really quick. Let me just press play. Can you all see that? Can you see this yep. right here? All right, viewer discretion is advised. Any, any oh no 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 sound coming through
1: no sound coming through
0: okay let me just figure this out One sec. i don't want to miss it but simon while i'm figuring this out really quick i'm gonna change my audio this will be a quick fix yeah um as i go back to here i'm just gonna change my mic really quick as i'm figuring this out what's your relationship with pork Oregon? you said you lived there for a little while
1: I did. I was lucky enough to work at Widen and Kennedy, Nike's ad agency as a writer and wrote commercials for folks like Lance Armstrong and Marion Jones and um, things like the Olympics and World Cup. And, um, you know, Portland, Oregon, you know, is on fire right now. And there are so many narratives about what's going on. Um, And I don't want to politicize the issue. But as I understand it, you know, these unmarked vehicles are you know, taking protesters away and we're seeing this rise of, you know, an unidentified group of folks who are policing situations um, that are then the people are being released because they've got no, there's no legitimacy to the arrests and there's talk of that being spread to other cities around the country and that begs some very real concern in terms of democracy and people's rights and with the upcoming election. It, it's it's got i think it's like day 45 there and growing i mean we both know in portland Oregon.
0: yeah very vocal people very nice kind it's very sensitive people too
1: uh but i spent a thousand days in borders in the rain looking at books and sipping coffees and wondering if i should get some sort of piercing somewhere you know but <laughs> but people care there there's no doubt about it here I'm yeah they care big re- time
0: remove this really quick and you might get an echo but i am going to play this video because i just think this is just some crazy
1: stuff man we got this podcast up just a little bit yeah and i have no idea what you're going to show so you know i'm going to keep i'll say poker face over here but inside i might be going oh my god what are you doing kevin yeah i mean it's you're building the tension this is the the leading i I love it i love it I'd
0: hate to overtype this, but yeah, the the tension's real right now. Let's go here. Let's go application window.
1: But I would, you know, for those that are watching and listening, I would say we can put faith in humanity. I mean, I think there's nothing we can't solve for when we work together. And um, these issues are just our briefs, our assignments, things that we've got to do. So uh, let's have a look. Yeah. All right. Hopefully this works. Oh, my goodness. Kev, whatever. Hey, you guys can see this, though. Yep. So give us a voice over here. What are we seeing?
0: So it's bit just, yeah, pay attention. Just basically guys walking across the street. And then bam. And then obscenity words, words, F-bombs, F-bombs. Let's get the F-bomb out of here. <laughs> and he's what, moving. What, what happened? So a, a flash bomb came out. So I'm going to play one more time. So they, they're throwing frag grenades at the pedestrians right here, as you can see. The guy's walking across the street. Now, let's take a look at this guy here. What's, is he dressed up? We see this guy dressed up. Not really doing much, but he's just casually walking across the street right. right here. And out of nowhere, this is right next to Malnoma. Just, bam, rocks the car. So much right. so that my friend, he say, you know, he's in the car uh, with a, a friend of his. And they immediately left right after that. I mean, obviously, right. the thing did its job. But just to go, you know, when you get to that boiling point,
1: yep. that's, it Might that might be what it takes. I don't know. Well, I mean, we've got this horrible conspiracy of circumstances where there's disparity of wealth. So the vast majority of people... Have missed out on their their part of the prosperity equation. That is the promise of America. And they're just struggling to survive and going paycheck by paycheck. On top of that, you've got COVID, where people have been pent up in apartments with young families and no schooling and all of these issues going on and worrying about their future, their jobs, businesses closing everywhere. And then you have this inexplicable militancy in terms of response, where, you know, and not knowing those people or that video. There seemingly there seems to be a peaceful situation that was, and there was a huge sort of unjustified response to it. You put those three together, and it's no surprise that the Black Lives Matter protests happened here and around the world. And you know, if things are continue the way they are, we can expect more of the same.
0: And and we can because that's I mean, I, here's my question again, Simon. I'm just want to play a little devil's advocate here. Has it ever been fair? Yeah. Has it ever been equally distributed, will it ever reach a point with this many people on this world where everyone can be satisfied or do you think it's more, you know, up to you?
1: I think you know, we are all responsible for our health and well-being, our personal well-being, and we all have a right to have a healthy self-interest. But when it gets to the point of selfishness where your well-being comes at the cost of everybody else, that's when we've got to pause and say, this is, is not sustainable. And I do think there are countries in the world that are doing a better job of it. If you look at Northern Europe, you know when you've got the you know the happiness index and you've got countries like Iceland and um, New Zealand looking beyond the GDP now as the measure of growth to well-being which includes happiness and so on I do think that when we start to prioritize the right things and measure success in those terms we can start to make progress in the right direction but don't think for a second that those who have benefited most from the way things that have been going are going to give up without a fight these are the the death knells, the flailings of, you know, the leaders of the past saying, I'm sorry, but, you know, it's our way or the highway. And it is reaching a boiling point in terms of the planet, in terms of societies around the world. Um, and I don't mean to generalize because they're all so specific. And in terms of the individual experience of the vast majority of people all around the world right now with COVID. So this is a very serious tinderbox and one that we need to, um, Manage and calibrate and respect very carefully because, in the same way, we couldn't imagine the entire globe shut down and millions of jobs lost and millions of business closing, there can be a loss of death in addition to what, you know, a loss of lives in addition to what's already happened and violence around the world on a scale that we haven't seen before. That could be a very, very dark chapter for humanity because we simply haven't faced issues on a global scale of this magnitude all at once together before. Well, Simon, speaking of chapters, I know you got a book coming out, don't you? I do. I wrote We First a few years ago, my first book, How Brands and Consumers Use Social Media to to, uh, Build a Better World. Um, And I now have a new book coming out, and it'll be out in a few months. And it's really about what I think the future of leadership is going to look like. And my commitment and the commitment of We First is ninety percent of our time is consulting where we help young companies, mid-sized companies, large companies become purposeful because I really think business is the, the lever that can we can use to drive change. But in the meantime, you know, I am I've launched a podcast um, about six weeks ago called Lead With We. And if you want to check it out, just go to leadwithwe.com and go to Apple and subscribe. And it's always great if you can rate and review because that bumps you up in the algorithm so people can see it. But yeah. All I'm doing is speaking to startups, purpose leaders, large corporations and saying, no, 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 don't tell me the great things you're doing. Tell me how you're doing it and growing as a business because we've got to protect our employees. We've got to you know, satisfy our investors. We've got to make sure that we're going to be around in a year or two and we need to do good. So now that we're all awake to the crises we're facing and you know, the, um, the need to be purposeful, how do you do it? So if you want to learn from me, but also from rubber hits the road, founders, solopreneurs, CEOs, and so on, check out leadwithweed.com and and subscribe because that's what my passion is. You know, we've moved beyond the why of doing this to the how. How the hell do we get it done? So
0: so I can't wait to tune into that. I highly recommend everyone to, uh, looking that up as well, because I use your quotes. I don't know if you knew it, because I know you don't listen to every single episode we have. But I use your quotes, powerful quotes, almost all the time. Well, and thanks. It's 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 just so surreal that we had you on as one of the first guests here on episode 20. And now we're up to episode almost 120. And now we're back for some more. But Simon, I just want to appreciate your time coming on the real Releaders Keep no Series first ever day. Had
1: a few technical errors today. But you, know you know what? Technology likes to remind us who's in control. Just when we think right. we've got it all sorted, it comes along and goes, hey, listen, sunshine, we're going to freak you out. Try and keep a poker face now. And then it does something like it did. Exactly. I think it's fair.
0: I mean, all that good stuff we talked about today, isn't going to matter when robots take
1: over and, and kill us? Like right. So. Right. And also, I got to put my hand up. See this gray hair? Man. I'm one of those guys who should not be allowed to touch buttons. When I touch something, it is... It just manifests smoke screens frazzle things are lost so it's partly my fault well you wear it well i like the dynamic we have
0: going on today and again just want to appreciate you coming on the the real leaders first ever keep it real series i think we kept it real today and i think it's just gonna right? get really
1: it's going to get really good really fun really fast and it's also going to get really scary at some points but honestly If we hustle together, and if we really hold ourselves accountable, and if we do it for real, to your point, we'll get there, we'll get there, it'll take some time. But I'm a big believer in humanity, and just look at what's happened since COVID. Look at the way that the environment and the natural world has regenerated. Don't underestimate for a second the regenerative capacity of this amazing planet on which we live on. So if we give ourselves and the planet half a chance you'll be blown away by what can happen.
0: I love it. Simon, can't wait to have you on in a month on this recurring yep. Keep It Real series. For Simon Mainwaring, I'm Kevin Edwards. Asking you to go out there, believe in humanity, people. And always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, everyone. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this one-hour, four-minute conversation of the Realest podcast. And first ever Keep It Real series with Simon Mainwaring. A historic day for the podcast. And if you want to be a historic guest, leave a review. Rate and review the show to let myself know how we can improve and others what to expect when they come to this channel. With that being said, you all are going to be walking away because this is a historic day with a free magazine on a one-year subscription. All you got to do is go online to real-leaders.com, enter in coupon code PODCAST25, and you are going to receive one magazine for free on a year subscription. All right, that's it for me. Stay tuned for the next episode.